according to author and uh, naturalist Craig Childs, in the United States, mountain lions are the number one predator of humans. And he has first-hand knowledge to support his claim. On one occasion, Childs was doing research on the lions in Arizona's uh, Blue Range Wilderness. And as he approached a water hole from downwind, he spotted a mountain lion drinking water. And it did not appear that the lion knew he was there. When the lion finished drinking, it walked slowly away into a cluster of junipers. After a few minutes, Childs walked to, a, to the water hole to identify the tracks in the mud and to record notes. Just before he bent down to look closer, he scanned the perimeter, and there among the shadows of the junipers, some 30 feet away, he saw a pair of eyes. He expected the lion to run away, but it walked into the sunlight toward him. Childs pulled his knife and stared into the eyes of the lion, He knew what he had to do, and more importantly, he also knew what he must not do. He writes, Mountain lions are known to take down animals six, seven, and eight times their size. Their method is to attack from behind clamp onto the spine at the base of the prey's skull and snap the spine. The top vertebrae are the target, housing respiratory and motor skills that cease instantly when the cord is cut. Child said, I held my ground and did nothing to even suggest that I would back off. If I run, it is certain I will have a mountain lion all over me. If I give it my back, I will only briefly feel its weight on me against the ground as the canine teeth will open my vertebrae without breaking a single bone. He continued and said, The mountain lion moved to my left, and I turned, keeping my face on it, my knife at my right side. It paced back to my right, trying to get around on my other side to get behind me, so I turned right, staring at it. My stare was about the only defense I had. The amazing thing is Childs actually maintained that defense as the mountain lion continued to try to provoke him to run. Turning left, then right, back and forth again and again until it came just ten feet away. Finally, the standoff ended. The lion turned and walked away defeated by a man who knew what never to do in its presence. That's about as real as it gets when it comes to dealing with a wild predator. And this morning, I want to talk about another predator, our predator, Satan. Satan is the predator, the enemy of God's people, because he hates what God loves. He hates what God loves. All who love and follow Jesus Christ are hated by Satan. And he wants 
nothing more than to bring despair and destruction and death to us. At the present time, God prevents Satan from unleashing his full power against the world. His impact is limited by God. But there will come a time when Satan will be permitted for a season to run amok. And this morning, we're going to get a snapshot of what that looks like during the tribulation period. If you recall from last week, we finished Revelation chapter 11 with the sounding of the seventh trumpet, which prompted a great celebration in heaven over the certainty of the coming reign of Jesus Christ upon the earth. It was a joyous scene witnessed by the Apostle John. But now we come to chapter 12, where John sees something different. For in his vision, he gets something similar to a biographical sketch, an overview of the main characters involved in this timeless conflict of good versus evil, starting at the beginning of time and most certainly coming to an end. So if you have your Bible, turn to Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12, and we'll begin with verse 1. Should be on the on the screen behind me, I hope. Revelation chapter 12, verse 1. And we read. A great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and on her head a crown with 12 stars. And she was pregnant and she cried out, being in labor and in pain to give birth. Stop there. Notice that this passage starts with the words, a great sign. Which tells us right off the bat that what John sees is symbolic. Okay? It's symbolic. In fact, it underscores the symbolic nature of this entire chapter. If you recall... I have mentioned to you a few times that I tend to take Scripture literally until it's obvious that I should not. And this is one of those times. This chapter is very symbolic in nature. But we must keep in mind that it is symbolic of real things and real events. So John goes on and tells us that this great sign in heaven pertains to a pregnant woman. Again, this is symbolic, not a literal pregnant woman. Okay? And she is clothed with the sun... The moon is under her feet, and on her head is a crown with 12 stars. And the question is asked about this unnamed woman, who does she represent? 
Some have identified this woman as the church. The Roman Catholics say it is Mary. But it's best to understand this woman as a reference to Israel. And let me explain why, okay? Turn to Genesis chapter 37, verses 9 through 11. Genesis 37, 9 through 11. should be on my screen behind me as well. In this passage, Joseph shares something with his father and with his brothers, and it goes like this. You might be familiar with it. Then he, referring to Joseph, had yet another dream and informed his brothers of it and said... Behold, I have had yet another dream. And behold, the sun and the moon and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. He also told it to his father as well, as to his brothers. And his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have had? Am I and your mother and your brothers actually going to come to bow down to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. Now, if you remember the story, several years down the road, they do bow down to Joseph who through a chain of events eventually becomes the number two guy in all of Egypt. And in this passage, Jacob, his father, made it clear that the sun and the moon represented Joseph's parents. And the twelve stars represent the twelve sons of Jacob whose name was later changed to, what? Israel. Also keep in mind that it was Israel's grand purpose to bring forth the promised Messiah, the Savior of the world. And he came into this world under pain, under Roman occupation. Jesus is the child who came from Israel. Now, as I said earlier, some suggest this woman represents the church. But I don't believe so because Jesus did not come from the church. The church came from Jesus. And in regards to Mary, we're going to see later, it can't be her either. So this pregnant woman is symbolic of Israel. But she's not alone in this story. Let's continue with verse 3. Just to see who else shows up. Verse 3. Then another sign appeared in heaven... And behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads were seven crowns. And his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and hurled them to the earth. Let's stop right there. Once again, John sees a symbolic sign in heaven. This time, a great red dragon who is later identified in this chapter as Satan. And he is the adversary of the woman. He's the enemy of Israel. John describes this red dragon, Satan, as having seven heads, 
with crowns on them and ten horns. Let me just tell you, this is going to require some explaining. Okay? And I'm not copping out here. Not wanting to cop out here. But we are going to see this again in the book of Revelation in much greater detail. So, I'm going to skip this and we will deal with it later. Okay? Don't chase me out of here. I'm not skipping it now. We will get to it later. So, I'm moving on. In verse 4, we are given a brief overview of Satan's story. And we are told that Satan, in his rebellion against God, swept away a third of the stars, a third of the angels in heaven. This is the only passage that tells us how many angels fell with Satan. These fallen angels, we would now call them demons, revolted with Satan at his fall. And they became his servants in his fight against the purposes of God. And as a consequence, God cast Satan and his fallen angels out of heaven, meaning they were no longer at home. In heaven. So, when did this fall occur? When did this fall occur? Let's try to figure it out from this 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 dual this dual prophecy about the king of Tyre and of Satan. Turn to Ezekiel chapter 28, verse 12 through 15. Ezekiel 28, 12 through 15. And we read, You had a seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. The ruby, the topaz, and the diamond. The beryl, the onyx, and the jasper. The lapis lazuli, which is another word for sapphire. The turquoise, and the emerald, and the gold, The workmanship of your settings and sockets was in you. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were the anointed cherub who covers. And I placed you there. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. Satan was once a cherub called Lucifer, the highest of angels. But after the creation of the world, Satan became prideful about his beauty and his position, and he became rebellious against God. And sometime between creation and Genesis chapter 3, where Adam and Eve were tempted by him in the garden, Satan must have fallen from his place of authority and power in God's kingdom. So Satan no longer has a home in heaven, but he's not in hell either. Today, Satan roams in the 
heavenly realms which are unseen to us. Now, beginning in the last portion of verse 4, we are told, back to Revelation 12, 4, we are told, and the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. And she gave birth to a son, a male, who was going to rule all the nations with an iron, a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Satan knows the prophecies about God's plan of redemption. He knows that salvation would only come through Israel's promised Messiah. So we find him throughout the course of history wanting to destroy Israel and the promised Messiah. That's his goal. And he influenced people in his attempts to carry out his plan. If you remember, Pharaoh tried to destroy Israel at the Red Sea. King Saul attempted to kill David, from whom the Messiah would come. Haman sought to destroy the Jews in Esther's day. King Herod wanted to kill Jesus soon after his birth. And later, Satan thought he had succeeded when he used Judas to betray Jesus and had him handed over to be crucified by Pilate. But we know that didn't work out too well, did it? In fact, it totally backfired. Yes, Jesus was crucified, right? But he was resurrected from the dead and he ascended into heaven, caught up to God and to his throne. In verse 5, one short verse, we are given a compressed history of Jesus Christ where we see his birth and we skip all the way to his ascension into heaven to prove that Satan completely failed and his fate, his doom, is completely sealed. So we jumped some 2,000 years in the past, but now we come to verse 6 where we blast forward by a couple thousand years completely ignoring the church age because this is not about the church. And we are told, then the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God so that she would be nourished for 1,260 days. Since Satan was unable to kill Jesus. He turns his attention and his anger toward the woman, toward Israel. And in the middle of the seven-year tribulation period, when the Antichrist sets himself up in the temple to be worshipped as God, he will fiercely persecute the Jews. And the faithful will flee for their lives into the wilderness. We're not told where they flee to in the wilderness. But wherever it is, we are told God will protect these Jews during the last three and a half years of the tribulation period. Even though Satan has it in for the Jews... God will preserve them and will fight for them. As we see, beginning with verse 7. John tells us, 
and there was a war in heaven. Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. The dragon and his angels waged war, and they did not prevail, and there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down. The serpent of old, who is called the devil, and Satan, who deceives the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters has been thrown down, the one who accuses them before our God day and night. Okay. This is an interesting passage. We're told a war breaks out in heaven. Apparently, Satan's hatred of Israel will lead him to make one final assault against God. But he will be defeated by Michael and his angels. Why Michael? Why Michael? Michael is the leader of God's angelic army. And he is assigned to protect Israel. We read about him in Daniel chapter 12, verse 1, where we are told, Now at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, referring to Israel, will arise. And there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. This is a good place to point out that Satan is not the evil counterpart of God. For God has no counterpart. More accurately, Satan is the evil counterpart of Michael. Satan was an angel. And that's why they are leading their armies into war. Satan and his demons are defeated by Michael and his angels. And the end result is there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down. This is not the same thing we just read in verse 4. Verse 4 was a past event that occurred between creation and the fall of man where Satan lost his place of authority and power in God's kingdom. But verse 9 is a future event where Satan will no longer have access to heaven. He is thrown out of heaven once and for all, limited to the realm of the earth where he will no longer be permitted in the presence of God to accuse us. Just like we see in the first chapter of Job. Think about that first chapter of Job. That's what Satan currently does now. He tells God how terrible and how sinful we are and how unworthy we are of God's love and His grace and His mercy and His forgiveness. But there will come a time when all of that stops. The accuser will no longer be permitted in heaven 
to accuse us. Does that make sense? Okay. In verse 11, we are told that the believers had an answer for their accuser. And they overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony. And they did not love their life even when faced with death. What was their answer to the accusations of Satan? It's the same as ours. It's the exact same as ours. They trusted Jesus Christ. Although unworthy, they knew they were made right with a holy holy God because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. These believers had a testimony, and it was, my faith is in Jesus Christ. He is my Savior and my Lord. And they were willing to give up everything for Jesus. Their reputation, their status, their pride, their possessions, even their own lives for what they believed. They were victorious over Satan. But the victory of these believers leads to some bittersweet words beginning with verse 12. Bittersweet. For this reason, rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to you the earth and the sea, because the devil has come down to you with great wrath, knowing that he only has a short time. And when the dragon saw that he was thrown down to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. But the two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman so that she could fly into the wilderness to her place where she was nourished for a time, times, and half a time from the presence of the serpent. So those in heaven can rejoice for Satan no longer has access there. He can no longer accuse God's people. However, everyone living on the earth at that time, especially believers, must beware because Satan now moves among them. And he is angrier than ever. He is a sore loser. And he knows his time is short, and so he pulls out all the stops to persecute and destroy the woman, Israel. But we are told the miraculous hand of God will be upon Israel. And they will receive divine assistance in fleeing from Satan. He mentions eagle's wings. Some believe these eagle's wings are symbolic of America. And our country will serve as a refuge to Israel. Some believe that. But I think it's stretching it a bit. Just my, that's just my thought. I think we're stretching it here. In the Old Testament, eagle's wings are a reference to God's protection. That's what it is. For example, in Exodus chapter 19, verse 4, when God enabled the Jews to escape from Egypt, they were told, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. 
So God often uses this picture to refer to his protection. And so we should probably understand this as describing the divine way that God will save a remnant of Israel during the last portion of the tribulation period. That's what the, where it says time, time is what? One, times is plural, there's two, so that's three, and half a time, three and a half. So during the last half of the tribulation period. That's why it's not Mary. Okay. Let's look at the last three verses. Beginning with verse 15. And the serpent hurled water like, like a river out of his mouth after the woman. So that he might cause her to be swept away with the flood. But the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and drank up the river which the dragon had hurled out of his mouth. So the dragon was enraged with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her children who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Satan retaliates. And John tells us that Satan poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman so that it might cause her to be swept away like a flood. This passage indicates that the water is like, there's that word like again, like a river coming out of his mouth. Meaning, this is probably a symbolic, a symbolic way of describing Satan's attempt to destroy the Jews with a flood of hatred and deceptive propaganda words coming out of his mouth. Remember, he is what? The father of lies. And deception is his primary weapon. Fortunately, we are told that the, the earth helped the woman, opened its mouth, and drank up the river which the dragon poured out of his mouth. Again, this is very symbolic. And I think it's just another symbol of God's protection. Similar to God's parting of the Red Sea. Just another symbol of God's protection. Maybe it's a way of describing what happens to those who pursue Israel at that time. And after having this, his great wrath thwarted, the dragon was enraged with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her children who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. So Satan is now a three-time loser. He has failed to destroy Jesus. He has lost the war in heaven. And he has been unable to destroy Israel. And so his wrath is now directed toward the rest of the woman's children. And I understand these children to be any true believer who is left on the earth at that time. <clears throat> As I look back over this chapter, again, a very symbolic chapter, hard to understand. I do see a common thread throughout. That being the relentless activities of Satan against God's purposes and against God's people. Satan is a, a cunning and stealthy predator. And like any wild predator, he stalks 
his prey. Watching us when we do not know he is there. While he stalks us, Satan looks for any sign of spiritual weakness and weariness. Anything he can use to his advantage. And he will work overtime to deceive us and make us think that God does not love us. Because that is foundational to the gospel. He wants us to doubt God's love for us. And like a wild predator, Satan also looks for prey that drops out of the herd. He looks for prey that drops out of the herd. He seeks those who are isolated and alone. Or just as effective, Satan will get you to think that you are the only one in the world going through what you are going through. Right? You are the only one in the world going through what you're going through. Satan works hard to isolate us and separate us by convincing us that no one can understand and relate to our circumstances. It's a flat-out lie. Fortunately for us, we are not alone. And Satan cannot do anything to us apart from God's control. We saw this with Job, where Satan had to seek permission from God to test him. Satan wanted to attack Job, but he could not touch a hair on his head because of God's protection. Now, if you recall the story, if you recall the story, Satan did get permission from God to cause calamity in the life of Job, but with limits. There were limits. God set boundaries that Satan could not cross. And when the testing was over, when the calamity ceased, when the dust finally settled, Job became much better, more knowledgeable, richly blessed, and stronger in the end. So what are we to do? The Bible tells us to resist him. To resist Satan. To resist his lies by standing firm in our faith in God and by taking our stand in the truth of his word. We resist Satan by knowing the truth and obeying what we know. For it's when we put the truth into action that the truth becomes real and tangible and practical in our lives. Simply put, we trust God by taking him at his word. Trusting what he says is absolutely true. 
no matter our circumstances, no matter how we feel, and no matter the lies that Satan whispers in our ears over and over again. Satan is the father of lies. That's what the Bible tells us. But he cannot overcome the truth or those who live by it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for your word. Father, I will admit sometimes your word is difficult to understand, especially when it's uh, of a symbolic nature as this chapter was. But the truth is clear. We have an enemy. An enemy who wants to destroy us. Wants to deceive us. He wants, he wants us to doubt you. But Father, you've given us your truth. And we can overcome him by the truth. Thank you for it. Father, I pray that you give us a passion for your word. Give us an insatiable appetite for your word. Help us to dig. Help us to read. Help us to study. Help us to know your word, Lord God. And then, Lord, to solidify your word. Help us to live by it. Help us to bear it out. May you be honored and glorified, Father. Help us to trust you. Help us to take you at your word. To believe who you are. To trust what you say. It will all happen just as you say it will happen. And I thank you. In Jesus' name. Amen. I was thinking this morning about uh, temptation of Jesus before he started his earthly ministry. Remember that? Temptation in the wilderness for 40 days. Interesting that Satan waited till he was alone. <laughs> also interesting that Satan uh, quoted scripture. Did he not? He quoted scripture to Jesus. But he twisted it, didn't he? It was all twisted. Jesus saw right through it. Satan even offered Jesus shortcuts. I'll give you the world. I'll give it all to you. You can bypass the cross. I'll give it all to you. You can take the easy road. He's the master of deception, isn't he? He's the master of deception. And, he, and he, he, he just lies to us over and over again. That's just why it's so important. If we are, if we are, if we are going to call ourselves people of the word, if that's, what we're going to, if, that's, if that's who we claim to be, people of the word, then we have to be in the Word, right? Not just on Sunday mornings. It should be part of your life. I was talking, I was talking this morning over here, and we were, we were talking about uh, you know, some, of the, some of the passages in Revelation are somewhat difficult, and, and having to go home and, and, and kind of restudy some of this stuff. I said, that's, that's, that's perfect exactly what I want. It's exactly what I want. That you're in the word yourselves. Satan will deceive you. That's, that's what he does. 
That's his, that's his, main, that's his main weapon to deceive us. And it's not so much through outright lies. I think more often it's half-truths. Half-truths. That sounds about right. I'm sure, surely that's got to be right. Half-truths. That's what he did with Jesus. He quoted half-truths to Jesus. And that's what he does with us as well. Half-truths. Those are the most deceptive, aren't they? The most deceptive. And we have to be careful. I hope this, this, was, a, <laughs> this was a difficult passage for me this week. I told Kimmy I wrestled with it all week. I, I'm, not, I'm not a fan of symbolic, the symbolic stuff. Yeah, I'm a literal guy. So I, 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 I struggle. Um, next week we'll be into the Antichrist and the false prophet and the mark of the beast. More, more crazy stuff. So... Yay, yay me. <laughs> yay me. Be, t- be praying for me. Anyway, but I, I, I hope you, you did get something out of the, this morning's message. I, I really do. And if, if God has moved you to make a decision for him, um, I pray that you, you obey him and do what he asks you to do. If, if there's something on your heart uh, you want to talk to me about, I'd love to talk with you. If you're looking for a church home, we would love to have you. If you don't know who Jesus Christ is, other than a name in the Bible, I would love to tell you who he is and invite you into just a personal relationship with him. However the Lord moves you this morning, I just pray, Lord, that you would just, that you would just be obedient and just respond. Okay? All right. Let me close us in prayer. I want to pray for our offering this morning. Just to remind you, our baskets are, are back there. And then also pray for our fellowship. I think uh, it's, it's pizza today. So, okay. Uh, let me pray. Father, I thank you for this time together with uh, my brothers and sisters. Uh, Lord, I God, I love them dearly. You know this. And, and Father, I just pray that you just bless them mightily. I pray, Lord God, that uh, you would just use them uh, outside these, these walls, Father. Help us as a church to be um, a lighthouse to this community. Uh, to point others to the Lord. Help us, Father, to multiply uh, your disciples. Father, as we uh, come to a portion of a service where, where we give back to you, Lord God, I pray that you would bless our, our tithes and our offerings and our gifts. Lord God, just, uh, just bless, bless it abundantly. Bless the giver, uh, Lord God, as well. And help us as a church, Father, to use your money wisely. Again, it is your money. It's not ours. And Lord God, for our fellowship, I, Lord, Lord, I just pray there be a sweet fellowship. Bless the food that has been prepared. Uh, bless those who have brought food. And Lord God, I just, again, I just ask that our fellowship would be, uh, would be something that's just beneficial and, uh, and loving and, uh, and, just, and just gracious. Thank you, Father, for this time together. In Jesus' name, amen.